You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Good morning, West Side Church. My name is Kenny Zuchuku, and I'm one of the ministers here. I want to welcome you to our online worship service. We have started to go back in person, and we're meeting at the Michelle and Barack Obama school over there, which was formerly named Olympic High School, but I'm encouraged that I can share that same lesson with you today online. So welcome guests, friends, and family. It's been a very encouraging past few weeks. We've been able to see some new faces join the West Side Church, so I want to just lift up Asia Yang and Michelle Lyons, who recently decided to repent and get baptized and who are a part of our church now. So if you're in your living rooms, your your couch, wherever you're at, just give them a give them give it up for them. We're so excited to ha- to see some new faces in the West Side Church community. Today, I'm going to be closing out our series titled "Scandal of the Cross." Scandal of the Cross. And if you see the graphic here, it's it's a really clear depiction of of what Jesus did before the cross, on the cross. And after the cross. And today I'm going to focus specifically on the topic of pride. I know pride is something that I know a thing or two about. Um, It is definitely a sin that's plagued me since I became a Christian and long before that. Um, So I guess it takes one to know one, right? I'll be able to speak directly from my own pride. And it's always difficult to do a lesson on pride. Because I think there's two things that people generally think about. And, and are, and are observing as they're listening. One, why do I have any right to tell you how you've been prideful, right? So you might be thinking, who is that guy to tell me that I've been prideful? And number two, it's really difficult for those who need to hear this message to internalize the message. It's hard because that's what pride does. It's blinding it. It's very difficult to accept it. In our own lives. Before we launch and talk about pride, I want to want to hit on this idea of scandal. And the definition of scandal is here. It says a circumstance or action that offends established moral conceptions or disgraces those associated with it. Or it could be a person whose conduct offends morality. And lastly, a loss a loss of or damage to reputation caused by actual or apparent violation of morality. And unfortunately, or fortunately for many of you TV and movie lovers, scandal sells significantly. People love watching scandal. They like drama. I was was in a meeting the other day with a friend, and he's like, Kenny, you just love people's drama. And I'm like, yeah, as long as it's not happening to me. (laughs) We love, we eat that stuff up. Anyone likes a good scandal. So I wanted to to pose a question to you. And for those of you um, who are on the chat, I want you to, to answer, what is one of your favorite scandals depicted in a movie, TV show, or book? Just one of your favorite, like, well, something that really incites, excites you or something that wraps you into it. I know for me, I've got a, I got a kind of silly example of a, a real life scandal that occurred when I was in college. So every year I would go to these camps. They call them teen camps. 
These are camps where high school seniors would come and they would learn about God. They would get deeper in the relationship with God, but also have a lot of fun. So we were doing all kinds of stuff, playing sports, uh, having pranks, you name it. It was a lot of fun, but also a really good time to connect with God. And I remember that year as a sophomore in college, I was one of the senior camp counselors. And each year at these camps, the seniors would have their own cabins and they'd have their own track. And because you were trying to help them mature and prepare for them to go to college. So we wanted to give them a different kind of experience. And I remember from my specific cabin, I had a group of rambunctious and rowdy male seniors. And they were crazy. They were a lot of fun. But they were, whoo, let me tell you. I'm actually about to tell you what happened here. And but But I will be, let's be fair here. They were also an equally rambunctious and rowdy group of senior girls, which you're going to find out in a second too. So so the whole time, the whole week they're asking me, Kenny, we really want to pull a prank on this one specific girl's cabin. And I'm like, no, we can't can't do that. Can't open the I just can't uh, get in trouble. But they kept they're very persuasive. So eventually eventually I caved. I said, "All right, fine, but you got to make it really small and minuscule. You can't go crazy here." So what I did, I got one of my friends who was another cabin, another senior camp counselor, and we we sh- we had a chaperone, what do I call it? A chaperoned prank session where we watched, we opened the door for the girls' camp. We watched them do exactly what they told us that they were going to do, which is flip over a couple beds. And they go in and they get it done. We get out and we go on our day and we're like, all right, we'll make sure to let them fess up later when we meet with all the seniors tonight at our senior meeting. But later on, we get this call on the walkie-talkies. They're like... Because all the counselors have them. So they're like, oh, there's been an incident in one of the girls' cabins. And we're thinking, oh, they probably just found the beds, flipped over, it's fine, let's go, we'll just tell them, clear it all up, we'll be good. But when we get back to the girls' cabin, we find the entire room ransacked. I mean, suitcases with clothes on the ground, makeup everywhere. So we're sitting there thinking like, we didn't allow this to happen, what could have happened? And then obviously later we found out that the girls had been fighting separately, not to our knowledge. So another girl's cabin thought that the cabin that had the bed flipped over, which our guys did, they thought that that cabin, another cabin, came in and flipped their beds over. So they retaliated by going in and ransacking the suitcases and throwing everything around because they thought that that was another girl's cabin doing it to their cabin. So it led to this whole back and forth and then it, it just blew up in our faces and we got in a lot of trouble. And I remember being called in by the camp counselor or the camp director. His name is Ruben DeAnda. And he remember he looked me in the eyes and he said, I'm so disappointed in you. And he rebuked me for my pride. And I remember feeling it. Because at the time that I made the decision to open that door and allow our senior guys to go in and, and just flip some beds over, I wasn't thinking about my pride. I wasn't thinking about the power I had. I just wanted to have some fun. It felt like it would be a lot of fun. And he said something that I will never forget. He said, you don't even realize all the things that go on and all I have to deal with because of your foolishness. (laughs) He was mad and I deserved it. And I remember feeling that day that, man, this level and depth to my pride is insurmountable. I didn't even expect it. Now think about that scandalous movie or TV show or book that you personally experienced. 
And think about the thing that is always present with scandal. In every scandal, there's always a preponderance of pride. I'll repeat as we look at this slide. In every scandal, there's always a preponderance of pride. And pride is toxic. And it infiltrates everything known to man. It's often undetectable to the host. Pride speak, spreads like wildfire, like the flames are revered and the smoke is inhaled. And as the debris piles up, the person causing it doesn't even care. Those who succumb to it do not even realize how far they've gone until something external imposes its will. Come to wake up. This is why 1 John 2, verse 16 says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Just think about how many times you've been angry or mad on your couch while watching a show saying, Why didn't he listen to her? Why didn't he do this? Or why didn't he do that? Or how could they not see it? And you're just frustrated. At the amount of pride and arrogance that some characters exhibit. And this is exactly what we see in the scandal of the cross. We see a preponderance of pride. And Jesus Christ does for us something that we can never do for ourselves. But it's hard to realize. So let's turn our Bibles over to Matthew 27, verse 32, as we jump in and continue. Matthew 27, verse 34, Matthew 27, verse 32 to 44. It reads, As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heap insults on him. Wow. Can we just take a moment just to sit and think and meditate on, acknowledge the preponderance of pride 
they hurled insults at him. And they're shaking their heads. The teachers of the law, the chief priests, the people that should have known better, mocked him. Death on the cross was regarded in Roman society as brutal, disgusting, abhorrent. It was reserved for convicted slaves, for convicted terrorists, and can never be imposed on a Roman citizen or a more respectable criminal. The cross was an affront in the Greco-Roman world. And Jesus, the most respectable, the most obedient, most loving man was subject to it. And on top of it, the people that surrounded him were prideful. And their pride came out. It always does. So I have two quick thoughts today. And we will be able to go through this. And hopefully it helps. One, the cross exposes our pride. And two, the cross redeems our pride. One, the cross exposes our pride. And two, the cross redeems our pride. So, let's start with the cross exposes our pride. We are about to embark on a church, the church in Corinth, where after these Christians had repented and been baptized, they began to backslide and they started to see the cross the same way as those who hurled insults at Jesus. They began to see the cross as the same way as those who mocked Jesus. Christians allowed their pride to diminish how they portrayed the cross, how they spoke about the cross. In other words, they stopped talking about it. They stopped preaching on it. They stopped sharing it because it was so scandalous. So they had backslid from what they had known when they had repented and made Jesus Lord. And over time, they started losing the impact that the cross had in their lives. And they just stopped talking about it. So let's turn our Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 18. And we'll read about how Paul deals with these Christians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It reads, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Who is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The culture in Corinth, which was a Roman colony, was of self-promotion. The Christians were competitive, consumeristic. They were all about themselves. And that pride was what drove everything about them. This affected the church in Corinth. Scholar Anthony Thistleton thinks this. He says, Christians in Corinth still carried over in their Christian existence 
many of the cultural traits that characterize their pre-Christian culture. I'll repeat, Christians in Corinth still carried over into their Christian existence many of the cultural traits that characterize their pre-Christian culture. In other words, there was an ethos of pride that permeated the church, so much so that they began fighting about leadership. Who follows Apollos? Who follows Peter? Who follows Paul? And these were big names at the time, so people tried to grab on and attach themselves to these big names because they wanted to elevate themselves. That's the culture of pride. That's the pre-Christian culture that existed. And I couldn't help, as I was reading this, to think of a city very similar to Corinth. You know, a city where you got some nice beaches, you got Hollywood, You've got great sports teams, great universities. Los Angeles is competitive. Los Angeles is consumeristic. And Los Angeles has that ethos of self-promotion and pride. I think our L.A. culture is full of pride. And I think we, as L.A. Christians can carry over into our Christian existence this pre-Christian cultural trait. It's everywhere. Do you see it? Have you felt it? Maybe you've become so accustomed to it, it's hard to identify. And I believe that we often take pride way too lightly. We take it way too lightly in our culture and we take it way too lightly in our church. You know what I've seen lately in our culture? I've seen this unhealthy focus, inordinate focus on human experience at the expense of God's word. I read this book, Great is the Lord by Dr. Ron Heifel, and he says this, human experience can be used as an excuse to overturn ignore or distort the apostolic tradition preserved in scripture. In other words, scripture is authoritative when it tells us to feel what we feel already. To think what we thought already. And to do what we wanted to do anyway. Yesterday, or not yesterday, a few weeks ago, on Saturday, I was playing pickup basketball First time in a while, I was able to get vaccinated and go out and they opened the parks. It was great. Remember, I, I went to the corner and I was playing these guys and I hit a fadeaway three-point shot. Wins the, wins the game. We walk off. And then one guy on the court says, Kenny, your foot was on the line. So we all look at him like, well, well, you're standing kind of far. Were you able to see? He's like, no, 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 no. I didn't see it, but I feel like it was on the line. And it led to this long 15-minute argument back and forth. We stopped the court. No one was playing because people were just going back and forth. How can you say that you, you, you feel it? If you didn't see it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and then he said, but what about you? Did you see your foot? Well, obviously not. I was shooting. So then how do you know? And I was like, ah, okay, you're right, fine. I guess you can get me on that. And I was asking my teammate, did you guys see it? And it was back and forth. But the point is, I was so mad that someone can make such a strong claim based on his feeling without really knowing. And I think oftentimes we do that as Christians. 
we have this word that God has given us. He's bestowed on us. That's preserved over time. But we choose to prioritize what we feel rather than what it says. So how does Paul address the folly of the Corinthians? How does he deal with what with this human experience overtaking the word? He references scripture. Scripture that they would know well, especially the Jews. He references the prophet Isaiah. Now remember in verse 19, he says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. That's a quote. Paul takes that from Isaiah chapter 29. Let's read. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depths to hide their plans from the Lord. Who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to what the one who, who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? In other words, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah is saying, this is what pride does. It makes you think that you can hide the depths of your plans from God. It makes you turn things upside down in your thinking so that you put yourself in the place of the potter rather than realize that you're merely a pot. God is essentially saying that you Think you're so wise, so wise that you're treating the Lord like a piece of clay. How dare you? Paul knew exactly what he was doing when he referenced Isaiah. A man known from his great faith and to throw haymakers every once in a while. The Corinthians were placing their value in worldly wisdom because they thought it was where they received the power of God. Brothers and sisters, can you relate to the Corinthians? Can you relate to them? Can I be honest with you real quick? I have a really hard time seeing Christians who loudly voice opinions. I can on any platform, it could be social media or in person or wherever. But they are not actively Involved, They're not in the trenches of helping others surrender to the cross. I always think of just how can someone, barring serious mental health concerns, know and identify as being in Christ, receiving that gift of grace in which Christ gave us when he died on the cross, and yet not sharing that message with other people. The amount of pride it takes to do that day after day, knowing you've been given this gift and yet just keeping it for yourself, diminishing the cross. There's just something about communicating the cross over and over again that leads to this deep humility 
in Christ. We can't bypass it. You can't circumvent it. It's just the way it is. And I think Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians that we can get so wrapped up in the illusions of wisdom, but still be living in folly. The cross is the criterion that exposes the difference between those who have surrendered to God and those who are using Jesus for their benefit. So I ask you, church, have you ever let your pride keep you from surrendering to the humility shown through the cross? When was the last time you sat down with someone and shared with them the life-changing message of the cross? Church, we must not let human experience become an excuse to overturn, ignore, or distort the message of the cross. The cross exposes our pride, number one. Number two, as we close things out here, the cross redeems our pride. The cross redeems our pride. Let's turn our Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. It reads, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, the the cross was so offensive in the Corinthian culture that even to talk about it day to day was unpleasant. That means that when people started start talking about it, it took an incredible person, it took incredible courage to have that curve that had that conversation, and it typically led to one of two responses. You're either gonna be radically persecuted <laughs> Because people don't want to hear that stuff. Or it leads to radical transformation. And I've been super impressed by just how these Christians would go around as a minority religion and still share the cross knowing that there is a good chance they could be persecuted. Paul reminds the Corinthians that they were wholly insignificant before they came in contact with Christ, before they became one with Christ, before they were transformed by the cross. And he provides a way for them to redeem their pride, which is encouraging, which is amazing. Years ago, I was a youth and family minister, and um, this is after, obviously after I repented from all my shenanigans at the camp. I never did anything like that again, but I became a youth and family minister afterwards, and I mentored this kid who was a bit of an outcast in our, 
in our teen ministry. And I remember how difficult it was with him. The young man was not easy to work with. He was prideful beyond belief. But God was calling me to help him. I just felt that presence and God calling me, go help this guy. And, and I, I remember I did that. I spent a lot of time with him. Um, we would, I would take him to get food. I would do all these things. And I remember not receiving much back from him. Sometimes I'd hang out with him. I, he maybe says a, maybe said a few words. But I remember one day he started opening up and he started sharing with me some of the deep things going on in his life. And, and he was sleeping with a girl at the time, obviously out of wedlock, obviously against what Christ wants for his Christians who aren't married. And he said, I've never shared anything like this before. And I saw more time and time went on. He just got vulnerable and more vulnerable and more vulnerable. And I thought, this is awesome. I remember letting him feel that safety. So I remember journaling about this because he called me years later. And I want to just read out of my journal. If you, if you get a, you get a copy of this, that's blackmail on me. So hopefully you don't. But this is what I wrote in my journal way back when. I mentored this teen years ago. He was messing around with his girlfriend, lying to his friends and his parents about it. He eventually told me, and he was super vulnerable, super open. And I began just reading scripture with him to help guide him, to help love him. Lots of grace was shown, and then eventually he kept persisting in his sin. He didn't want to change, but he still wanted to claim the label of Christian. So I continued. I persisted. I helped him to be open. I helped him to be vulnerable. I helped him have hope. I helped him feel desired. And I helped him feel cared for over a period of months. And these are all important and should not be neglected. But I realized there was something that I had not helped him with. I did not help him remain faithful to God. At least not fully. There was a part of me that felt like I was doing that. But I knew there was one thing that I had not done with him yet. Something that God modeled through his prophets, through his disciples, through his Christians. I knew I needed to confront and challenge him as we call it, rebuke him. But I didn't want to do that. Just like when we're driving, there's traffic, and someone in the front of you is just is not moving, you want to honk. I'm not a honker. This is not who I am. I'm not a rebuker. That isn't my characteristic. It's not my trait. It's uncomfortable. But I knew that this is something that God clearly communicated in his word. So I did it. I mustered up the courage. I got a lot of advice without without sharing any information about him or his identity. And I remember I rebuked him and told him he had to change. And then he stopped speaking with me. Almost overnight. Until five years later, as I'm writing in this journal, he shoots me a text. And he asked to get time on the phone. He calls me. He apologizes. In tears, he says, I'm so sorry 
for how I treated you. You were trying to help me see what God wanted me to see, even though my experience wouldn't allow me to see it. You persevered. You loved me. You cared for me. And without you, I would never have come back to God. And I remember I just started weeping. I couldn't believe it. You hear about these stories, but you never think it's going to happen. And I've had my fair share of disappointments and failures where people just never at least communicate a change of heart. But what I learned is that God can redeem our pride. But he needs you to accept it. And he needs you to confront it. Because there are people in this world that may never see it unless that external will imposes its force on it. People are looking for redemption. So as Paul says, if you want to brag about anything, right? If you anything you want to boast in, boast in the Lord. He allows us to have this freedom. In short, this is my advice. Accept your blame and lift up his name. Accept your blame and lift up his name. The biggest scandal ever was Jesus Christ coming on this earth to tell you and me that we have fallen short, but that he can redeem us if we choose to put away our pride Put away arrogance and say, I see it. And I want to change. And I want to surrender to his will. And this all happens at the cross. So how can we not talk about it? How can we share it? How can we not communicate it? How can we bring it up and challenge people on it? We need the cross. Accept your blame. And lift up his name. In closing, I have some action steps for you. Evaluate your pride. Ask three people who you know, who know you best about the ways pride manifests in you. And two, help someone you love identify and surrender his or her pride to Christ. If we can spend time really practicing it, not just saying, oh, I get it in my head and I understand it up here, but living it out, it can change hearts. And I'm going to close with the word of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says, If it is I who say where God will be, I will always find there a God who corresponds to me, is agreeable to me. But if it is God who says where he will be, the place is the cross of Christ. I love you all. Let's go out and remember that the cross exposes our pride, but the cross also redeems our pride. Love you all. Have a great day. Talk to you later. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.